Well, good evening, everyone. Uh, can you hear me? Great. Well, it's, it's lovely to be back here. Um, I was last here the end of June last year, so 11 months ago. Uh, I've just finished training as a vicar, to be a vicar over in Bristol, which is great. Uh, and my family over there, Lella, who's my wife, uh, Heidi, who's my oldest, uh, and Austin, who's my youngest, one of each kind. Austin is eight months old. Heidi is almost three. Um, great to be back in Bath. We are going to be starting over in Twerton at the start of July, which we're so excited about. But why worship? Why do we do all this? Why come week in, week out? Why sing these songs? Why stand with our hands in the air? Why, what's the point? I mean, what is the It's kind of weird. I, I love smelling good. I love aftershave. I try to smell good anyway. Uh, I love being at an airport early so I can browse in the aftershave section. I love going on ferries and spending a long time uh, in the aftershave section. I, I love it when someone else is there with aftershave or perfume on. I find it intoxicating. Uh, it's just great when a person smells nice. Uh, I will apply it liberally, without excuse. If I am clean-shaven or scraggy-shaven or not shaven at all, I will splash that aftershave on. It hides a multitude of sins. Um, it makes me smell good when I am not necessarily clean. It conceals and it hides uh, in much the same way that they used to uh, uh, use it on dead bodies. But <clears throat> Anyway, tonight we have a story about some perfume, about a bottle of perfume. Uh, its purpose was not for concealing, though, it was for revealing, for making a very profound statement about the one on whom it was being used, it was being applied. Now, I realise in any setting where people gather, there's always quite a cross-section. Uh, generally speaking, in churches, you will have Christians who are long in the tooth, new Christians, uh, people who are perhaps on their way, and sometimes, quite often actually, which we need to be more aware of, uh, people, it just doesn't come onto their radar. Uh, so I just want to say that I'm aware that in this room there will be represented a multitude of viewpoints. I think that the message that this passage reveals is the same, whoever we are. Whatever our background, whatever our walk, whatever our story, the message is the same. And that is Jesus, the one of whom we worship, or at least the one that we should worship, certainly deserves our worship, changes lives. Jesus changes lives. He forgives sins, he heals, he transforms, he takes away everything that is troubling or that holds us back. He has done this. He's proven himself to have done this. He does this, and he will always do this. And when he comes in glory, we will understand those things fully. And that Jesus does not demand our worship. He doesn't demand it from us, but he certainly deserves it. And he delights in our worship. Our worship of him is no obligation, 
although it's certainly a duty, but it's a response. We respond to who Jesus is and what he has done, what he does and what he will always do, what he will continue to do. That is why we worship. Our Bible passage tonight, framed in a typically Luke way, interestingly, this story is one of the only stories uh, that is uh, written in every gospel. So, it obviously has something to say to us. It speaks of reversal, of salvation. It speaks of an outcast who, despite being mocked by those around her, does what is pleasing to the Lord. Nothing holds her back, and she's rewarded for it. This is an exceptionally important story for us as Christians. And for us tonight, I think, especially as a church explores what it means to be healthy, which is great series to be looking at. In fact, in Matthew, when Matthew writes about this story, uh, he says that her story, the story of this lady, will be remembered across the world and across history. That's true. We're hearing it again tonight. Incredibly important. So a quick outline, a quick overview of this passage. Jesus has accepted the invitation of a bloke called Simon. He's a Pharisee. Uh, And so he goes to his house to eat some food. And whilst he's eating, a woman shows up. A woman is present. Uh, She's a sinner. She's known as a sinner. That's her name. That's her title. We We don't know her name, actually. But we know that she's a sinner. And... We don't know the details of the sin either, and that should be perhaps a sidebar that we might want to park and explore at some point. Anyway, she's learnt that Jesus is going to be at this bloke's house, and she's decided in advance of going to see Jesus that she's going to take with her a bottle of perfume, an alabaster jar of perfume. This is, note, this is a premeditated action. This is something that she has decided that she is going to do. And the details of which are later revealed. Standing behind Jesus, the woman begins to weep. She begins to weep so much that her tears drench Jesus' feet. They wash his feet. She then dries them with her hair and she continues by kissing his feet. Now, if things aren't weird enough at this point, she takes the perfume and she pours it over Jesus' feet. Now, just imagine for a moment, I, I, use, lib, I use aftershave liberally, but I also use it sparingly. It costs a lot of money, this stuff. I use a bit at a time. This is an entire bottle of perfume which she soaks over a bloke's foot, over his feet. Can you just imagine the smell that would fill that room? It's a bit like um, if you walk into this church before all this happens on a Sunday night, you will quickly realise that something else has happened over the weekend. Namely that there's been another worship service from a slightly different expression of the faith who use a lot of incense. This place stinks, frankly. It's a lovely smell, but it it smells a lot. 
Now just imagine the smell if you emptied a whole bottle of perfume. Anyway, Simon, the host, the Pharisee, is so annoyed. And in a rather derogatory way, he mocks Jesus' identity. If you were a prophet, you would know that she was a sinner. I mean, what kind of welcome is that when you invite someone into your house? You don't start mocking them, do you? But Jesus then gently puts Simon in his place and using a parable, he challenges his attitude and he provides commentary and comment on the events that have just happened. Simon is rebuked and the nameless woman is publicly forgiven and she's sent on her way in peace. That's the outline of what we're looking at tonight. Why do we do this? Why do we worship? So I want to say a few things tonight. The first is this. All are welcome and all are invited to worship. You see all over the place that you go, train stations, colleges, shops, airports, wherever you go, welcome signs. And they're all the same. Welcome in English, welcome in every other language that there is. Why? Because they want to welcome everyone who might possibly be uh, coming through their doors to this place. They want them to know that they are welcome. I want you to know that you are welcome to worship Jesus here. Again, in a typically Luke way, we have a man and a woman in this story. We have a Pharisee and a sinner. You couldn't get more opposite. Pharisee was seen as a very righteous man, a very godly man in Jewish society. He was good. He was a good man. St. Paul, he was also a Pharisee before he was a Christian. The woman was seen as the opposite, not so righteous, a sinner. Some say that she was a prostitute. That's, I mean, read commentaries, they all differ on these things. I think, sadly, we have a reputation in churches for being pretty exclusive. You've got to look the right way, you've got to sound the right way, you've got to say the right things, you've got to do the right things, you've got to behave like this or not behave like this to fit in. Sadly, there's a legacy, particularly within certain streams of the church, of restricting certain people. Classically, it's to do with gender. We're just starting to get over that hurdle. We've got a long way to go. We just don't know how to welcome people. But it's more than welcoming people to our church. It's welcoming them to the feet of Jesus. Again, a long way. We still don't quite know how to welcome and love people who perhaps share different points of view to ourselves. Male, female, religious, non-religious. Those who think they're righteous and those who are seen as sinners. Those in society with good reputations and those with bad reputations. Everyone, I want to say, is welcome at the feet of Jesus. Everyone is welcome in his presence. Everyone is called to worship him. I don't know your background. I don't know your belief. I don't know your race. I don't know your religion. I don't know your sexual persuasion. But I do know that we are all unified in our humanity as those who have been created by God those who have fallen from his grace and those who have turned our backs on him and sinned, I know that a way has been made for each and every one of us who choose to accept it to be saved from the consequences of those sins. And I know that we all owe everything in gratitude to Jesus, the one who has done this. We are all called to worship him for who he is and for what he's done. 
all are welcome in this place tonight. All are called to Jesus, no matter what your story, whatever baggage you're carrying, Jesus has already sorted it out for you on the cross. The invitation is here. Come into his presence. Come into his presence. Come to his feet. Come to where he is. Come ready to worship. So the second point, worship is costly. Worship is costly. It's going to cost you something. It ain't no freebie. I've been uh, following some of the news of the Queen's 90th celebrations. What an incredible woman. Incredible legacy. And we must continue to pray for her. Three days of celebration. Just these last three days, not to mention all those other days of celebration that we've had for Her Majesty. Church services, more exuberant than wedding, than marriage ceremonies, dignitaries, wise people, noble people are there, world leaders. Everyone's there, roads closed down in central London just for a massive horse parade. Imagine the clean-up operation after that. A different kind of stench, I would think. The streets adorned with well-wishers and fans. A fly-pass by the RAF. I'm into that kind of thing. A giant picnic costing £150 per ticket, followed by a festival and street parade. I mean, how much do these celebrations cost to put on? That's a lot of money, I would think, for one very special lady. Three days. And we live in a consumer culture, don't we? We buy things that we don't really need, and then they break. And so we buy more things. We're trying to fill holes. I want, I want, I want. Me, 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 me. And, you know, too often this, this can spill into our worship, sadly, into the stuff that we do as church. Too often, uh, and I am certainly both uh, the victim and uh, the perpetrator of these things, I can find myself attending church services and standing in times of worship with pretty much the same attitude as I might do in a Mac store. I've come and I take and I leave. I come, I take and I leave. To fill what? To fill perhaps emotional holes with good times, partake in an experience which if I'm honest, too often the effects of which have worn off by the Monday, certainly the Tuesday, I think worship needs to be more authentic than that. What's it mean to be healthy? It doesn't mean that. It's, it's more than a temporary feeling, I know that. We don't just come to take, but we come to give in worship. Worship is about giving, it's going gonna, it's gonna to cost us something. Firstly, financial cost in this story, going back to the story. Now, again, the other Gospels, when they talk about this story, um, speak about the value of that perfume, of how much that, that bottle of perfume might have cost the woman. It would have been exceptionally expensive. Some commentators note that the jar itself the alabaster jar would have been kind of a, a long jar with a long neck on uh, to prevent, if it gets knocked over, it all spilling. 
You see, they don't, they, this thing costs more than a year's wages. You don't want to go wasting that. So, in order to pour that thing quickly, do you know what would have happened? Break the neck and pour it out. Can you imagine this? Just go back to that room. This, just think about the scene. This, so, we've got the smell. We've got the noise of glass breaking, of pottery patch breaking. Now, day to day, this woman would have used that perfume sparingly. She would have made it last. She would have used it when meeting people to make an impression. It probably would have been the most expensive thing that she owned. And if we're to believe what some people say, then it, it probably was the tool of her trade. It was her livelihood at stake here. Her life literally did depend on this thing you know, to pull in the punters. It wasn't cheap perfume that you could pick up on a ferry for under a hundred quid. Yet she smashes that bottle, smashes it in a moment, and she pours the contents over Jesus. Because, you see, it's not about her anymore. The value doesn't matter. She doesn't matter. She has no other agenda at that moment. She has come only to anoint Jesus only to anoint him, yet she pours everything out on his feet in his worship. It's all for him. It's all for him at this point. How much does your worship cost you? How much does it cost me? We went to church this morning, another church that shall remain nameless in the city, and uh, we had to park our car in a car park. You know, Bath is so annoying. Coins only! I mean, come on, what decade is this? Anyway... Enough said. It cost a fortune to park my car. Absolute fortune in town on a Sunday. All days. The Lord's Day. You think it'd be free. But we do this so often, don't we? We skimp on the things that we should be extravagant on. And we're extravagant on the things that we should skimp on. We do it in ministry. We do it in mission. We do it in our fabric of our buildings. What's it cost you to worship? What's it cost us to worship? What's the value? What's, and what's our attitude to that like? Are we open-handed or closed-fisted? Secondly, it cost her reputation. It cost her financially. Now, it cost her reputation. Simon failed dramatically. You know, the bloke who was hosting this meal failed dramatically to welcome his guest, Jesus, into his house. The custom of the day would have been, guest comes in, Kiss them on the cheek, sit them down, offer them a glass of... No, they wouldn't have done that. Sit them down, wash their feet. No shoes, sandals, dirt, sandy. Wash their feet. And then you would anoint the head of that person with oil. The psalmist speaks about this a lot. Just a drop. It's a blessing to anoint them with oil. Simon the passage says, did none of this. So he doesn't welcome him, Jesus properly, and he mocks his identity. I mean, what is this bloke on? What is his agenda? It's not explicit in the text, but I don't know. He's trying to get to Jesus, certainly. 
Yet here is a woman who washes Jesus' feet with, his, with her tears, who kisses Jesus' feet over and over and over again. And finally, she anoints his feet with the most expensive perfume going. Not just cheap knockoff, you know, in the market oil. But hang on, we've, we've skimmed over something here. She, she cries and then she dries Jesus' feet with her hair. Let's not miss the significance of this moment here. Possibly the most provocative point of the night. Possibly. Would have been disgraceful behaviour. Absolutely disgraceful. Lady's hair would have been up, covered. Who invited this lady anyway? What was she doing here? And now she was, her with the bad reputation, the sinner flaunting herself on Jesus. Can you imagine the, the people? What would have been said of her? What would they have said about her? Who lets down her, lets her, down her hair in front of everyone. Just a side comment here. So in the society for a lady to let down her hair is an absolute disgrace. Absolute. The only person who would have seen that would have been her husband on the wedding night. So in doing that, in laying down her hair and drying his feet, she was making herself as good as naked before the Lord in an act of worship. Now who else do we know who did that? King David. An extravagant act of worship. I'm not condoning nudity in this building. I'm just saying that. She was hiding nothing. And then to end this obscene scene, she anoints Jesus. Do you realise just quite how explicit these few verses are? Everyone in that room would have stopped at that moment and stared at that woman, that sinner. That sinner, it's her again. What on earth is she doing now? Do you ever feel like that person in worship? Or do you ever catch yourself saying that in worship? I, I, I am guilty of this. I have been in the past, people dancing, flying flags, you know, I like to snigger if I'm honest, because it's out of my comfort zone, that's not what I do. I start judging people for their act of worship, that's not right. Well, when was the last time I made a scene? When was the last time I made myself look stupid in worship? perhaps danced. At what extent are we prepared to do? Put our reputation on the line? And by the way, let's not limit ourselves to sung worship, okay? To understanding worship as singing songs. Let's not limit ourselves. A hero of mine, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German theologian who was killed by Hitler for trying to assassinate him. That's another story. He says that when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. That was the length. That's the length that God 
calls us to. What is God calling us to do in ministry, in mission? What's going to cost us? Jesus says you have to leave your brother, your mother, your father for the sake of my gospel. Again, I'm not condoning that you go and do that just, you know, as a reactive measure. But the point is that it's going to cost you. Perhaps you will lose something significant. Perhaps it will be your reputation. Perhaps it will be friends. Right, thirdly, cost her, it cost her emotionally. This is the kicker. Go back to imagining the scene for a moment. So Jesus would have been eating with others in the middle of the room. Just on the floor, probably a t- long table in the middle of, of the room and, and select guests sat around this. And there would have been space all around the outside of the room. And it would have been filled with people coming in and out and walking around. So this woman sneaks in. And she makes a point of standing behind Jesus. And you know, his feet would have been kind of under his bum and you know, as, as you would do, just reclining, relaxing, having a good time. And she, she strategically places herself at the feet of Jesus. This was not impulsive. She planned to bring that bottle with her to anoint Jesus. But little did she know what would actually happen. Can you imagine? Her heart must have been racing. Her palms sweaty. The adrenaline kicking in. You're you're actually hearing your heart in your ear. Can you relate to those feelings? I've had that when I've been in trouble with different people, if you're still at school, or bosses, or whatever. And she stands there. She was only meant to pour it over his head, just a few drops. You know, it's to anoint, a blessing is to anoint someone with oil over their head, just a few drops. Just a drop or two, but she hesitates. She is completely overwhelmed with emotion. Overwhelmed with sorrow for her past sins. But it's mingled with this kind of profound gratitude and thankfulness for Jesus and for the saving work, for his forgiveness. See, a radical change is not about to happen in her life. It's already happened. Why did she bring that perfume? Why was she going to anoint Jesus? She must have encountered him. This is me speculating. She must have come into contact somehow, heard about him, met him, seen him. Perhaps it's a story that we haven't had written down in our Bibles. There are others. (laughs) Overwhelming love for Jesus. Overwhelming, so much so that she bursts into tears. That wasn't meant to happen. Not just a few tears that she quickly rubs off her cheek. This is streams of tears. Streams enough to soak his feet, to saturate them. The reformer Martin Luther called these heart water. What a beautiful statement, heart water. 
poured over the feet of Jesus and she undoes the knot in her hair and she lets her hair fall down. She's on her knees by now, kissing Jesus' feet and drying his feet with her tears. Can you imagine the kind of embarrassment and humility and just this sense of of encounter with Jesus. Think how intimate that would have been. And she kissed them. And she smashes that bottle. And she liberally pours the contents all over Jesus' feet. When was the last time you cried in worship? When was the last time there was an emotional connection in worship? Laughed. When was the last time it made you feel something? And those feelings that made you want to worship Jesus even more. See, we need to invest more emotionally in our worship. More in what we're doing. But word to the wise, this is more than an existential elation, more than just a good feeling to satisfy ourselves. It's not about us. Don't you get it? None of this stuff is about us. It's not about how we feel for our sake. It's about laying ourselves bare for the sake of Jesus. It's allowing him to enter into the deepest parts of us, perhaps the hardest parts of us. Hearts of stone, bones that are dry. It's allowing him to breathe his life into them. Don't be surprised if you cry. It's a big, big thing. And why did she do this? You know, society claims that Jesus was just a prophet, a good man, at best, maybe. Showed us good things, moral behaviour, ways to live. He's great, but he's not God. Simon, frankly, personifies this secularist attitude spectacularly. He mocked the identity of Jesus. He laughed that if Jesus was a prophet, that he was one who didn't know what he was doing because he didn't even know whose company he was in. Oh, Jesus knew, all right. That's the funny thing about this. Jesus knew she was a sinner. He knew that Simon was a sinner. He knew that she was standing behind his feet in the same way that he knew that someone touched the hem of his garment in a crowded place. The point is that it wasn't that he didn't know that she was a sinner. It's that he knew exactly who she was and exactly the sins that she had committed. Likewise, he knew about everything of everyone in that room. See, Jesus, I believe, is more than a prophet. He's God. He always has been. Even before he came to this earth, he's always been. His forgiveness extends through eternity. and The woman recognised who Jesus was and what he'd done. And that's what she had come to acknowledge. That's what she had come to worship. Jesus had so completely changed her life that she just had to find a way to say thank you. Her worship, therefore, is a response to the identity of Jesus and to the amazing grace 
The amazing grace that he gives. Why do it? Because Jesus changed her life. Perhaps, perhaps they'd met before. We don't know. But we do know that before she entered that room, she had a revelation of who Jesus was, that her sins had been forgiven, and that she had to worship him. She had to acknowledge that. Bottle in her hand, she came to express gratitude. Jesus changes lives. I believe that in the act of worship, whilst we're doing this, and whilst the woman was worshipping, Jesus changed her life. He had changed her life, now he was changing her life. Whilst she was worshipping, something happened to her. Her revelation of him increased, became more, so much so that her worship became more intense, more authentic. And as she was worshipped, she was changed more. She left that room a different person to the one she came in as. No longer sinner but forgiven, no longer troubled but at peace. And Jesus continues to change lives. It's not just a historical thing or a momentary thing. It continues into eternity. This is discipleship. That's the tag that we might like to call this. This is the next step. This is about what happens when you leave this room. This is what happens on a Monday, Tuesday, all the way through till next week. Christianity is not a one-time event. It's a daily walk. It's working this stuff out in real life. Jesus, by the power of his Holy Spirit, continues to change us. And the result, you want to worship him even more. It's a cyclic event. He changes us, we worship him. We worship him, he changes us. And the story continues and continues and continues. We worship him for who he is and what he does. Why does she do any of that stuff? Why do we do any of this stuff? Coming full circle. Well, despite being a righteous man, Simon didn't recognise Jesus' identity. Didn't see it. But the woman did. This is why she worshipped Jesus and Simon didn't. In fact, as we've seen, Simon showed pretty much no regard for who Jesus was. He was the one who was supposed to have the inside track of this stuff. But the woman, supposedly unrighteous, I love the way Luke does this. He just changes things. No, the sinner. She becomes righteous. She becomes forgiven. She becomes at peace. Simon doesn't worship, but the woman worships as an act of joy. She rejoices in the freedom from guilt that she has received as a result of God's amazing grace towards her. I'm finishing now, but I want to bring us to the cross. Our worship, what we do, is a response to his grace. It's a response to his amazing, forgiving grace. It's hard in this age of of entitlement that we seem to find ourselves in to really grasp God's grace. And it's a prayer I pray for my children. You know, it's only going to get harder. You know, we think we're owed it. (laughs) 
We think we deserve it. We think it should be given to us. Because that's what he does. My daughter's over there coming to see me. She loves asking for things. But she has an incredibly demanding attitude about it. I want, I want, I want. I think like, like that sometimes we, we, we can cheapen the generosity of God. can cheapen his grace. And it doesn't become a special thing anymore. It doesn't become a gift. It doesn't become a treat. Indeed, it, it doesn't become amazing anymore. But amazing grace is given to us, given to us by God in Jesus Christ. He chose to enter this world. He chose it. He chose it. To die on a cross, be raised again, so that we may have life in all its fullness. He didn't have to do those things. We could have self-destructed decades, years ago, centuries ago. But he did, and that's amazing. He saves us. He chose to save us. And he still offers that salvation. I worship him. This is her telling me to finish. I worship him because he deserves it. And frankly, there's nothing else I can do to recognise his grace and the impact of that grace on my life. So, it's kind of over to you now. What do you want to do with this? What's God saying to you tonight? Let's close our eyes and consider that question.